This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. Uh, my name's Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my usual uh, colleague, sidekick, straight man, co-host, <laughs> Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. You got it all right. And Todd, it's the week after the uh, PCA General Assembly. It Are you is. in your usual annual deep depression? I, or uh, No, I am I am. Ebullient with uh, with um, joy and uh, encouragement. It was a uh, good week for confessionalists for the second year in a row at the PCA General Assembly. So I'm uh, encouraged. We'll see if anything sticks. But um, uh, it was good. It was a long week. I served on overtures committee. We did about 21 hours of work in um, in about two days and. Uh, uh, but it was uh, it was good. It was worth the uh, the efforts. Yeah, this so. this is going to sound terribly small minded of me, but That's I, right. I miss the days when I used to be able to give you fake sympathy over how badly things had gone. <laughs> where in, inside I was, you know, pray, I thank you, Lord, that the OPC sure. are not like other men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're 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 working hard. Um, all it takes is to be willing to be seen as a as a you know knuckle dragging troglodyte and, yeah. and if you're willing yeah. to take on that persona in your denomination then then it can be okay well, and you do it so well though. i do you, i do you, you do it so well yeah i'm used to not having friends and i'm willing to continue in that state excellent so. excellent well we have two guests today i think uh, both repeat offenders on exactly. the show uh, one of them uh, is our old friend john fesco uh, last time we had him on the show, I think an influential Baptist tweeter tweeted out that the podcast was extremely dangerous. So uh, it's great to have John Fesco back on. John has had a change of job, I think, since last time he was on. He's now the Harriet Barber Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to be with you guys again. It's always great to have it's you. It's great to be dangerous. It is. It is. <laughs> and right. uh, we actually also have John on uh, with, with another guest who I think might be considered equally He's dangerous, dangerous as well. Very yeah. dangerous. Uh, our old friend and again, a repeat guest, Craig Carter, who is the research professor of theology at Tyndale University in Toronto. Craig, great to have you on as well. Yeah, it's great to be the Daniel in the Presbyterian lion. I, I, I would be a Presbyterian, but I'm afraid I don't have the constitution for it, Todd. <laughs> it's it's our it, listen. Once people start tweeting, I mean, people have been tweeting hateful things about you. It's okay. The water's fine. Come on over. I, 
I, I accidentally blundered the other day onto some Southern Baptist sites. Goodness gracious me, the Southern Baptists make us Presbyterians look <laughs> as if we all love each other and live in peace and harmony. Wow. It's, it's true. It's true. There's nothing like a, a Southern Baptist. And as someone who was raised Southern Baptist, I can tell you nothing like a, a Southern Baptist food fight uh, to make you feel good about being Presbyterian. Yeah. So. Well, the reason we have our friends uh, John and Craig on the show today is they're both speaking uh, for the Alliance's conference, the Prince George's Conference on Reformed Theology. And the topic this year is the usefulness of creeds and confessions. Uh, let me throw a comment out to you, gentlemen, just to sort of prime the pump on this one. I was, I don't do Twitter, but somebody sent me a tweet. Somebody uh, did. Somebody sent me a tweet from somebody who will remain nameless that went out a, <laughs> uh, a week or so ago saying that uh, uh, most Christians, I, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but yeah. most Christians throughout most of history knew that subscribing to things like the Nicene Creed or the 1689 uh, Baptist Confession of Faith was really not a Christian thing to do. Uh, and this is not something that Christians uh, should be involved in. It struck me as a, uh, first of all, remarkably historically ignorant comment, because it simply isn't historically true that that's the case. But what do you think about that in terms of theology? Uh, is no creed but the Bible, which seemed to me to underlie uh, the, the tweet as it went out, is no creed but the Bible a legitimate approach for Christians? The question is not, do we believe the Bible? The question is, what does the Bible teach? And what is the true doctrine that emerges from the Bible that is foundational to the Christian faith? So the issue of the, the creeds, and again, it's not the creeds in general, but we're specifically talking about a certain creedal tradition, the Apostles' Creed, the Creed of Nicaea 325, the the uh, revision of it in 381 at Constantinople, and then the addition of an addendum to it at Chalcedon in 451. Um, th and, and this specific creedal tradition, which I think is actually um, comes to its climax uh, in, in a way in the Athanasian Creed, so-called Athanasian Creed, which I, I think needs to be more emphasized than it, ever, than it has been in, in certain Protestant circles. But that tradition embodies a certain interpretation of the Bible. The question is, is that the right interpretation? That, that's really the question that, that we ought to be dealing with. It, um, it, it sort of takes the, the discussion one step further. Um, we all agree, theoretically, that the Bible is the ultimate authority and, and that source of special revelation. But the question is, what does the Bible teach? And uh, for some reason, some people can't get their mind around the idea of how important it is to believe that the Bible teaches one set of doctrines versus others. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that was instructive for me when I became a Presbyterian is I was in preparation for my uh, ordination exams and I was studying the Westminster Confession of Faith over and over and over again, getting ready, was how much of the ecumenical creeds are in the Westminster Standards. Um, they're all there and, and in some cases, you know, nearly quoted um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the framers of Presbyterianism and, and Reformed theology uh, very much owed a debt of gratitude to the ecumenical creeds. And it's clear in what they wrote. Carl, you and I were talking earlier during a break. I mean, I'm reading Francis Turretin and I, you know, the fingerprints of, of classical theism are all over Turretin. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and it's interesting in the Reformation, I think, if you look, say, at early Calvin or early Luther, there is a, an initial, perhaps, impulse that's pressing against some of the sure. the early church formulations. But, but both men learn pretty quickly that these formulations are there for a reason, and they fulfill a very, very necessary function. Mm-hmm. Um, so Protestantism has always been, uh, been creedal. We've got John Fesco, of course, uh, online here. John, you've written a book, uh, The Need for Creeds Today. Um, we were talking earlier. I love the the Top Gun allusion, of course, yes. in, the, in the title. Yes. There. Yeah, the follow up um, is going to be uh, the Need for Speed today, yeah. and then the Need for Volleyball today. But yeah, <laughs> but what would you say? Uh, 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 I mean, Craig has, has, has eloquently uh, made the point that the Bible needs to mean something, and the creeds connect us to the tradition of how the Bible has been understood. What do you see as some of the primary advantages of churches having creeds and confessions today? How can they be used? Uh, Not simply in the sort of negative sense, if you like, of keeping some people out, but how should they be folded into the the everyday life of the church and the everyday life of Christians? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, uh, and at at the risk of beating a dead horse, uh, you know, for anybody who would say, that I'm dangerous, I would say, that's right, Iceman, I am dangerous. (laughs) But that that being said, uh, it's so important that it's like, you know, if uh, if Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 4 that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to the church, and among those gifts, there are teachers and pastors, and uh, that means that we should take advantage of the gifts that he has given to the church, and it's not just those people that are walking about that are alive and breathing, but as G.K. Chesterton once said, that we want to take advantage of the democracy of the dead, or, you know, in Lewis imagery of letting the fresh breeze of the centuries past blow through our minds to remind us of truths long forgotten. And as, as Lewis says, it's not that the, that the past tradition uh, is free of error, but rather that they would not necessarily make the same mistakes that we do. And so what we're able to do then is from these past generations that have wrestled with the biblical text, and as Craig rightly said, they've interpreted the scriptures, we can learn from them as they teach us. Uh, and uh, we can make use of their, their wisdom and their instruction because we're not the first ones to come to the Bible and that, in one sense, may sound a little bit abstract, but it, it comes home, for example, whether it's a, a ministerial candidate, you know, studying the, the, the shorter and larger catechism, say, in the Presbyterian tradition for his ordination exams, or something as simple as, you know, catechizing a child where you're teaching a child uh, the, the, the faith. It's, I think so many people come to the scriptures, and even in seminary education, I can, I can remember sitting in my hermeneutics class when I was a seminarian, and the assumption is, is that how do I, as the lone individual, come to the text uh, of scripture and figure out that it's the word of God? And I always tell my students, that's, that's not how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to read the Bible in a churchly fashion or in a covenantal fashion, which means that we teach the young, young people of our churches, uh, you know, the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as, as Jude says in his epistle. But a second observation here is, is that it comes to play in the average everyday life of the church 
especially in worship. And this is something I think that is often a missing element in, in so much of our corporate worship where we don't have, uh, you know, a confession of faith to you. So, uh, but in, in the churches where I've historically worshipped, and it's whether it's the, the PCA, the OPC, uh, for the most part, you know, we will regularly invoke the Apostles' Creed yeah. uh, or uh, recite the Nicene Creed or go through questions from the Heidelberg Catechism or the uh, Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. Uh, because as as Todd noted, uh, it, what we're doing at this point is when we profess, say, the Nicene Creed, we're joining hands with uh, our ancestors saying that the faith that they professed is also the faith that we profess, right. uh, and that this all comes uh, from the scriptures. So, uh, I think that those are just some of the, the, the average and kind of hopefully ordinary but maybe in some cases they're not so ordinary in some churches uh, but that's the way that we you know the, the creeds and confessions come home uh, to us on a, on a on a regular basis mm. you know i've noticed um pastorally as well um particularly it seems like for the uh for the university students um in my church almost every week we'll, we'll recite a portion of a creed or a question from heidelberg or or the shorter or larger catechism and those university students really appreciate the historical rootedness of that being reminded because we know, I mean, uh, uh, Protestants have and evangelicals have lost a lot of folks to Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics for, for largely aesthetic reasons, um, reasons of, of, of historical rootedness and that sort of thing. And, and the fact is the Protestant church um, is rooted in history. If you look at our, 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 our documents, particularly if you go to the 17th century, um, and the uh, the Protestant scholastics, the Reformed scholastics, um, were the, the again, you know, the, the, the fingerprints of of the early church fathers, and and even going back to things like Platonism, categories from Platonism and Aristotelianism are there as well. I, I wonder how do we, when people object to Aristotelian um, categories and language, Platonic categories and language, saying. Uh, we we need to be rid of all of that because it's it's fundamentally pagan and we can't wed that um, to our to our doctrinal formulations. How do you respond to that objection? Uh, you know, uh, I'd be curious to see what what Craig says. But there's a there's a quote that I I think it's from John Maynard Keynes, uh, who was a, a noted economist, who said that. Uh, and I'm going to adapt his quotation to to answer your question yeah. to say that. He who thinks that he interprets the Bible purely biblically, apart from any type of philosophical assumptions, is probably the servant of a defunct philosopher or theologian. <laughs> um, you know, in other words, it's like I think with the Aristotelian so-called uh, you know assumptions that a lot of us bring to the text, or at least what what comes in what we would say is classical theism, is that I think what we're doing is we're being honest and we're laying our cards on the table and saying that we're reading the Bible. Uh, uh, with leading with faith, uh, but then we're supplementing uh, in terms of using reason to clarify and to give us refined expression and to help us sort out, uh, the, the, you know, the, the truth that we see in Scripture so that reason uh, and the truths from the creation are, are a tool, an instrument to help us to understand the faith with greater, with greater precision. And it just so happens that a lot of those truths that we find in the creation uh, were coined, in a sense, by Aristotle. That's not to say that he created them, but rather he simply stumbled upon them, mm -hmm. if you will, 
and uh, he's 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 using them and he gets the credit for them. But he no more created these categories than Christopher Columbus created the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so that that would be the first observation. The second observation is is let's you know again now we're going to fast forward in the conversation here really quickly. But you know to say that oh. You can't say that God is the uncaused God. That's Aristotelianism. And then I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to say that God changes based upon what Scripture says. Well, you may not be invoking Hegel, uh, but that's a Hegelian idea that says that the divine is ultimately marked by change. Uh, And so you're bringing, or the person is bringing, unchecked philosophical assumptions to the interpretive task. Uh, And so I want to say it's not a question of coming to the Bible apart from any type of philosophical assumptions. We all will bring them, but rather it's a question of checking those assumptions at the door to say, uh, do these help or hinder uh, our uh, efforts to understand and interpret the Bible and to and to rightly do theology. So that's the way I'd I'd answer that. Craig, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. When I hear people, uh, conservative Baptists, fundamentalist Baptists, uh, saying those sorts of things, that we don't need any creeds but the Bible, we don't need any Greek philosophy to interpret the Bible, um, what strikes me is that it sounds an awful lot like like Adolf von Harnack. And, mm-hmm. and I see history repeating itself. Like, where did liberal theology come from? Where did liberal Protestantism come from? It came from evangelical Protestantism that adopted modernist uh, ways of thinking. So the whole Hellenization thesis, the whole idea that was brought forward by Harnack and others in the 19th century that the early church was uh, corrupted by Greek philosophy and that the simple faith of the Bible was encrusted with all this ontological language that's irrelevant and can be pared away. And what they ended up with was a moralistic gospel where Jesus teaches ethics and and all you need to do is, um, is uh, you know follow the right social political program and you are uh, a christian in the kingdom of gods around the corner and uh, the whole doctrines of sin and salvation fall out now the weird thing is that the modern day conservatives who are making this case think they're preserving the gospel of sin and salvation and yet they are following a track which historically in the past has led to the undermining and the destruction of that gospel. And there may be a few more steps down the road that they haven't taken yet, but they need to take more seriously the history of the church and they need to, to, to basically say, look, we've done this before, we've been at this place and we've gone in a certain direction. The results are, are, are horrific. So why do we think that doing it all over again is a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I think you can also add to that. I think you're absolutely right there, Craig, to, to point to Harnack. We could go back further. We could point to the Sicilians uh, in the 16th, 17th century. We can point to the Unitarians in the 18th century. The track record of what one might call anti-metaphysical Christian in the broadest sense theology is a catastrophic one. Uh, and it typically ends with a complete disemboweling of the gospel. And one of the ironies, of course, in all this is, you know, Christians are well aware, you you hear these deconstructing stories and, you know, somebody's read Darwin or evolution and has abandoned the faith. And the response is always, you know, there are some good answers to this. You need to read more widely. This, well, the issue of of the Hellenism, the, 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 the Greekification of 
Christian orthodoxy. That has been addressed time and time and time again in a very, very thorough and adequate way. I'm thinking in terms of uh, just in the last year, I was reading Paul Gav, I'm not sure how to pronounce his second name, but Gavriliuk, I think. He's an Eastern Orthodox uh, historian and theologian. Does an excellent job in parsing the, the way that Greek philosophy is utterly transformed as it moves into, uh, as it's appropriated by Christian theologians to articulate their position. You know, the polemics one reads against Thomas Aquinas online do nothing other than reveal the the total ignorance of those doing these polemics concerning the history of their own theology. Uh, there's a 30-year vast body of scholarship demonstrating the intimate connection between 17th century reform theology and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, now, you can reject 17th century reform theology, but then... You know, don't start claiming to be a Protestant heir of the Reformers. You are not a Protestant heir of the Reformers. You are a Protestant heir of the Sassinians. (laughs) And, and, you know, just be honest about it. Just be honest at that point. These people are your antecedents. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend anybody disturbed. You know, we, we, we always need to be aware that philosophy could corrupt our theology. But don't grab hold of the simplistic narratives that are out there. Read the scholarship that has carefully addressed these kind of questions. Read Gavriliuk. Read Dominic Legg. Read Thomas Joseph White. Read Richard Muller. Uh, these are the people to read that will help you navigate some of, the, uh, some of these debates. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the more the answer is more knowledge of the history of the tradition. But we're we're modern modern people, and modern people are anti-tradition by definition. That's in our gene. Right. That's in the, the water we drink, the air we breathe. The, the modernity is a project that has set itself against tradition and believes it is superior to tradition, and and that we don't need tradition. This is an idea deeply ingrained in our minds, whether we realize it or not, and we've got to resist it. We've got to recapture a concept of divine providence. You know, God has providentially given the church. Um, The incarnation happened at a certain time for a reason, and some of these reasons over the centuries have become apparent, and God has used uh, some of the Greek philosophy that was in existence to, God has used that in in the sense that the church was able to take concepts and to articulate the meaning of the Bible in a in a more clear and precise way so as to defeat heresy and to preserve the purity of the gospel. And that providential action has taken place, and we need to recognize it. Like we, we need to, to realize that God, using the fourth century controversies to bring forth the Nicene faith, is, is a real advance, a real help to the church in terms of clarifying what we know the Bible teaches. And and uh, we need to appreciate that as not something that's outdated or surpassed or just their opinion, but, but something that in God's providence has become foundational to the identity of the church over 20 centuries. And this requires us, though, to, to get outside the spirit of the age and to think in a non-modern way. That's not easy for people to do. You have to really read and think and reason your way into that position. You, you won't just pick it up from, from the mass media or from your public mm-hmm. education. It is odd that fundamentalism, which in some ways poses as the quintessential anti-modernist movement, is a very modernist movement yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah you know, it's interesting. I, have, I, I corresponded <clears throat> with a, a longtime acquaintance who's a seminary graduate and a, a Baptist, and he's also a, 
committed Bardian. And so we've had some of these discussions about metaphysics and can you talk about God as he is or just talk about God in relation to his redemptive works. And um, I'm almost finished preaching through through the book of Genesis. It'll be about uh, 84 sermons when I'm done in a few weeks. And I can't imagine preaching through Genesis and not having uh, ways to speak about God as he is, um, such as the doctrine of aseity. Um, I, I can't imagine preaching through through Genesis and not being able to appeal to what we, you know, call now, you know, these classical um, doctrines of, 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 of God. We're Christians, and so we rightly love talking about God um, uh, in Jesus Christ and about his redemptive works, of course, and, and the gospel is all over uh, Genesis. But the, the Bible encompasses more than the gospel. Um, the gospel is central, but there's more in the Bible. And, and there's more to God than just his redemptive works on our behalf. And he gives us that in the scriptures. And I just can't imagine not, not preaching those things. Because there's strictly from a pastoral standpoint, there's great comfort in things like God's immutability. When you're preaching to suffering people and people who've experienced tremendous loss, um, the doctrine of, of God's aseity, the doctrine of God's um, immutability are tremendously comforting uh, pastorally. But they also, uh, Craig, as you mentioned earlier, they help uh, w- where those things are abandoned. Um, it's ironic that you find certain fundamentalists and conservatives abandoning them, but it's also very characteristic among liberals to, to abandon that, um, that classical uh, metaphysic or classic doctrine of God. Yeah, I've been reading Thomas Joseph White's new book on the Trinity, and uh, he makes the point, uh, to follow up on what you're saying, Todd, that the way the Bible, the way the Old Testament speaks about God itself cries out for philosophical distinctions to be made. So he, he points out that the Bible uses metaphors for God. Now, other times, the Old Testament uh, uses analogical language to say things that are literally true about God, We're reasoning from God's effects to God's being. And then other times, uh, the Old Testament simply names God directly. God is this mm-hmm. or is, is that. Uh, God names himself, I am that I am. Well, the process of disentangling and figuring out these three ways the Old Testament speaks about God requires metaphysical distinctions to be made. Yes. And so it may be true that the Bible doesn't just present a ready-made system of metaphysics for us to believe, but it's also true that you have to engage in metaphysical reasoning about the God-world relationship in order to accurately explain mm. and present what the Old Testament is saying about God. Yeah, 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 that's really so helpful. And, you know, again, just as in in, in the work of my pastoral ministry, um, over the years, I found myself by necessity in, in people's lives having to appeal more and more to some of these categories I gain from uh, from the church fathers and, uh, and, and classical theism. Because the, the way I picture it is, do that kind of doctrine from the pulpit so that you're not having to catch people up in the hospital room. Um, give them those anchors about God's immutability and his impassibility and why that why there's comfort for the soul in that so that they're not completely adrift when when they're in the hospital or 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 in the place of deep grief and you know again as a pastor I I, I, I have found the if I can use this term the, the tremendous usefulness 
of, of those metaphysical categories for the comfort of God's people. I mean, it's funny how it works that way, right? You know, truth about God happens also to be very comforting for God's people. Well, um, I want to thank our guests today, Craig Carter and John Fesco. Um, they both do great work. I commend their work to you. Craig Carter's books, Contemplating God with the Great Tradition and, in, uh, and Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, are books that, um, that Carl and I have uh, very much commended. And then uh, same with, with, uh, with Dr. Fesco, just a, a whole list of, of very helpful books, everything from academic treatments to subjects to, um, uh, to devotional and ser- sermonic uh, books as well. And if you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, uh, you'll find an opportunity to win John Fesco's book, The Need for Creeds Today. It's an excellent little book, very accessible, and I think will enrich uh, you as a as a Christian and encourage you. Um, Christianity was not discovered in the 16th century. We have a long and blessed tradition, and this book will help you appreciate that. So if you go to our website, you can enter to win a copy. And while you're there, if you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to support Carl and I in the luxurious way that we are accustomed to. On our Bond villain yacht in the Caribbean. Yes, yes. I the mean, Alliance that, is kindly pe- provided. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, listen, that yacht's not going to pay for itself. No. So you'll want to make a donation. Um, no, seriously, the, the Alliance uh, uh, uses money very uh, responsibly because they don't have any other choice. And, uh, and, and your donations to continue to provide great content is very much appreciated. So with thanks to our guests today, Craig Carter and John Fesco. Uh, This has been Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. We're so glad that uh, you've been with us today and we look forward to being with you next time. I feel the need. The need for creeds. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Feel the need, the need for creeds. It's not the, uh... I told the publisher that when they first said that that was the title of the book, and I said, <laughs> that sounds a lot like Top Gun. And I said, <laughs> okay, how about if we put in the word today? And I was like, <laughs> sure, that fixes it. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, I think as long as it's got plenty of uh, all-male volleyball, um, then, it's, <laughs> then it's good. So. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are 
Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful.